Okie dokie. Um, so just, you're still thinking about your papers maybe a little bit? Um, don't think about them too much. Just write good papers. That's really all you need to do. Um, so Simon um, asked a question which I wasn't anticipating in the email, so I thought I'll just, so I had to think about it before I answered him, and then I did, and I did. Um, that is, I thought, and I answered. Um, so he understood um, me to be suggesting when I said that you could do your own um, Markley type thing where you would um, put a bunch of clips together um, and then talk about um, how you're fitting them together, what the um, idea behind that kind of temporal mosaic was as um, one of your two papers. Um, he decided to do his own clips. That is, he is himself um, uh, videoing um, things which he is then stitching together. Um, so I thought, oh, well, that's really interesting, not what I'd actually thought about, because what Markley does is he goes to classic and less classic movies um, and gets clips from them, and what I imagined you might do is... Um, Um, go to YouTube or um, Latte or Vimeo or Vine or whatever and do that. Um, but if you want to use your smartphones or some other technology and um, do your own versions of um, some sort of thing which um, comes to a watchable video, not too long, I hope, um, but comes to some version of a watchable video, um, where what's connecting the clips that you're putting together is not that you're telling a story. That is, it's not that you um, storyboard something and then um, um, film it, but rather that there's some um, observable event, incident, series of incidents in the world, um, which you can stage, but stage a single incidents. That is... Um, if I turn on the light or if I turn off the light, that's an incident. Um, if I turn off the light, um, sneak behind um, an innocent baby, kidnap that baby and leave an ice baby in its place um, and take that baby with me to Tahiti where I train it to rob a bank, that's a story. That's not an incident. Um, so don't do the latter. Um, don't tell a story. Um, which could be told, let's say, as a story after someone sees it. But if you want to do um, an observation of the kinds of things which are filmable or videoable, um, and they're not a exactly the same thing, um, and that's not something we're going to get deeply into in this class, but you can do things with video that you can't do with film. And in fact, you can do things with film that you can't do with video. But um, for the purposes of what we're doing, um, if you want to do something that's... Um, videoable, um, not as story, but as um, mosaic or series of connections, um, you can do that as well. Some of you and um, others of you may want to see this if um, you go to New York um, before the end of the term and think about it in these terms. There's a, actually a pretty neat exhibit at the Morgan Library right now um, of photographs where um, it's about um, 100 or 150 photographs, each one of which is connected to the previous photograph in the sequence by um, some sort of shared 
um, um, element. But um, what photograph A shares with photograph B is not the same thing as what photograph B then shares with photograph C, nor is that the same thing as what photograph C shares with photograph D. Um, so it's a little bit like the photography version of word golf. Does everyone know how to play word golf? No? Well, if you're an alchemist and you want to turn gold, if you want to turn lead to gold, um, you might, actually I'm not sure how to turn lead to gold. I think you turn um, lead to leaf, um, that is you turn the um, D in lead um, to, eh, or, never mind, I'm not going to explain how to turn lead to gold. Um, but, um, yeah, you do it through golf. The idea in word golf is that um, you, turn, you change letters one letter at a time, always going through real words. So you could turn lead to bead, let's say, and then bead to bowed, and bowed to bold, and bold to gold. That will do it. Um, and so what you've done is um, by, by making connections, linkages between one word and the next, you can get from one word to a completely different word. Um, that kind of linkage um, is something you can do between clips in your um, smartphone movie or what you can see done in this exhibit at the Morgan. Um, so that's just another possibility if you're, if you're looking for possibilities. It's not something that, I, that um, I'd anticipated you're doing, but after thinking about it when Simon suggested it, it seemed like, sure, if that's, uh, if that's a neat thing for you to do, um, then go for it and do it. Um, okay, we're gonna, there, I see that Barkley is gone. Um, so he did exist, but no longer. See, that's a philosophical joke. He should be rolling in the aisles. Um, boy, is that funny. I can't believe, I cannot restrain myself. Um, it's just too much. Um, I guess you can restrain yourselves. Oh, well, um, that's good. I'm glad you can restrain yourselves. That's an important thing to learn how to do in college. Um, but um, we will talk about La Captive, um, maybe a little bit right now and then more on Tuesday. Um, but there, um, I do want to get back to some of the philosophical issues that we still haven't quite caught up on in Kant and in Berkeley, and to some extent in um, Descartes as well. But what did people think of La Captive? How many thumbs up? Oh, man. Um, Matthew? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Two thumbs up, right? Way up? All right, so that's four. Uh, no, you, did you just, was it Matt or was it, what's the point? Yeah. I just hated both characters. <laughs> really? How come? Well, the guy was so creepy. Yeah, he was. Like, he is. So <laughs> but then the girl on top of it was just so terrible at communicating, which like it then just ended up like there's clearly a problem in their relationship, but like it was because of both of them at the same time. So then I just disliked both of them because they were like things that should have been like really obvious to stop doing. <laughs> like what? Like not stalking your girlfriend. You or think? Okay. Her while she's asleep. Yeah. Um, and maybe like you know actually talking to your partner on the girl's side. Mm -hmm. But they're just like this. Yeah. Um, and then it would be, she made one um, Hollywood movie called A Couch in New York with um, William Hurt and um, Juliette Binoche. And so she, 
she did once make a Hollywood movie, and in a way, that's what that movie would be um, if she had done it that way. Yeah. I was going to say some of the parts I thought were pretty realistic in that uh, one of the scenes that I did not really like when they go all the way to her aunt's house, and then they're talking, and they decide that they want to try it again, so then they leave. I thought that, um, like, in a lot of times in movies, you won't see, they won't waste your time. Uh-huh. So it'll be like, they'll go, and it'll just be the end. And then in this case, they decided to go kind of a different direction, and it was as something might actually occur where you go and decide, actually, I changed my mind. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think there is something neatly realistic about that, and it partly plays with, um, I, I think what you're saying is that it partly plays with conventions. Um, that is that, in a sense, what one convention of narrative filmmaking is that everything has to matter. That is that every, what word shall I use, incident um, that occurs in um, a standard, um, well-crafted, well-made narrative movie um, is that every incident has to matter. And therefore, there can't be incidents that turn out, in some sense, to be duds. Um, even if plans don't work, which is um, characteristic of well-made narrative movies, someone makes a plan and it doesn't work, and um, what, you're, what you or they are hoping or fearing will happen doesn't, um, the non-working of the plan has to contribute to something that will happen later. Um, Everything has to be essential to the story that's being told. If you were to try to reconstruct the story, um, you couldn't do a good reconstruction of a story in a well-made Hollywood movie, and those are the best-made movies. Um, You couldn't reconstruct a story perfectly if you left out anything that happened in the movie, even the comic bits, um, even something that looks like it's just a gag um, for um, a particular moment, it turn, it'll turn out that that gag is actually information-bearing, that that gag will um, tell the audience something that it doesn't know that it's being told in order to explain something that will happen later. These are all things you can observe um, next time you watch a Hollywood movie. Um, that that um, you know I, I can't actually think of a particular incident now, but um, in World War Z, whatever Brad Pitt does in World War Z um, is giving you information that's going to explain um, what's going on later in some other scene in the movie, even though you didn't know. Not that there's much comic stuff in World War Z, although the whole thing is funny. Um, but um, it always matters. And for Ackerman, it doesn't. Or if it does, it matters in quite a different way. Did people know who she is besides um, the little introduction I gave of her um, last um, Tuesday? Okay, so if you look at um, lots of 100 best movies of all time lists, lots of them, if you, if you were to get the 100 best, 100 best movie of all time list lists, did you follow that? the 100 best lists, which list the 100 best movies of all time, she would appear in a majority (coughs) of those 100 lists. Um, And she would appear in a majority of those lists for her most famous movie, which is a movie called, I'm only going to give the short title, Jean Dillman. Um, It's actually her name plus her address in Brussels. Um, And Jean Dillman is... um, often regarded, although Ackerman is not happy about this this, um, um, characterization of it, 
but it's often regarded as one of the great feminist movies of all time. And it certainly is, but she doesn't want it to be seen as a document of feminism. She wants it to be any more than she wants um, La Captive to be seen as a document of feminism. Yeah. Wasn't she kind of crazy about the identity politics of her movies generally, though? Like, she refused to let her movies be shown at any and all gay film festivals, yeah. any and all female film festivals. Yes. But, like, couldn't that just be more of a descriptor of her being, like, afraid of being boxed in? Yes. Yeah. I don't really think it's that she like wasn't a feminist. Oh no, she's absolutely a feminist. And and no, she's absolutely a feminist. She was an out lesbian when um when um she most people didn't want to be ghettoized. Yeah, she didn't want to be ghettoized. No, exactly. Um sorry? Which I think is reasonable at the time. Yeah, no, so I'm just saying that if I characterize it as a great um as as one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest of feminist films. Um, I also want to say that that's a characterization that she would object to because she wants it, um, rightly wants it, and and um, um, would accurately um, want it to be regarded as one of the great films of all time um, without having to say film of a certain type. Um, so where Jean Dillman is, have you seen it? Uh, it's, I fell asleep. You fell asleep. People do. Um, but it's actually, if you watch it a second time, it's riveting. Um, what it is, it's a, it's a, it's three and a half hours long or so, and um, what it's three days in the life of a mother, um, her very creepy son, um, the the guy in La Captive is an Apache on um, the the child, um, the the college student age child in Jean Dillman, um, and um, Jean's. Jean's Johns, that is, she's a prostitute, um, but her prostitution takes the form of having one client a day, and only one client a day, while her son is away, um, presumably, at school. And um, over the course of those three days, what you are mainly seeing her doing is obsessively keeping her house in order. Um, they, they are poor, um, she's his father is not in the picture, um, there's evidence that he's died, um, and, um, but she's keeping it together, and she's keeping it together by being extremely precise, um, about all her household domestic and economic activities, including the money she gets from her daily trick. And, um, so you watch her cook, you watch her clean, you watch her do um, an enormous number of things, and there's hours of watching that. And I don't mean figuratively, I mean literally hours of watching that. Um, and what happens after um, several hours of this is you start noticing what you're looking to notice anyhow, what anyone probably taking this course is looking to notice, which are mistakes. Um, that is, if you're the type of person um, who, whenever you see a reflecting surface in a movie, um, will try to see whether you can see the camera in that reflecting surface, you're that type of person. So, you know, a Cadillac pulls up in front of um, Mrs. Mulray's house in, oh, guys, Chinatown, um, and it's shiny. And um, you may look into the chrome or the door to see whether you can see the film crew. Um, and occasionally you can, and that's cool when you can. Um, it's you're looking at the film as an actual film. You wouldn't see such a thing in animation. 
That is, no matter how carefully you look into A Bug's Life or Toy Story, you're not going to see the animator. There are Disney films where you will, actually, because, as jokes, because there are Easter eggs in them. But you won't see the animator reflected in, some, in, in um, uh, Woody's shiny forehead. Um, but in film, you will, because it's recording what's actually there. The thing about film is it records more than the filmmaker knows is being recorded. So Ackerman is assuming that you will be watching with that kind of attentiveness. Um, you don't have to be, um, but the more attentive you are to details in watching that movie, um, the more obsessively you will be watching to see whether all the details are right. And in particular, details like continuity, which we've already talked about. That is, if someone has, has if there's a cigarette half smoked in an ashtray, and then you cut to um, a shot reverse shot sequence, the continuity person has to make sure that there's still a smoking, you know, that there's still a, a lit half smoked cigarette in the ashtray. Um, some of you probably, are you the kind of people you should be who look for, who notice product placement? So you know you're not supposed to notice product placement, but if you notice product placement, sometimes you'll wonder, well, are they placing a product here or not? Oh, you know, one thing I really like about Buffy is there is no product placement in Buffy. Buffy is always fake products, <laughs> and they don't make any money by doing real product placement. But how do you know there's real product placement? Isn't it funny how when three people sit down at a lunch counter, all three, the cans of Coke that all three are drinking, and they're all drinking Coke, the Coca-Cola logo is presented right towards the camera. So if you're the kind of person who notices that aspect of product placement, um, then you're the kind of person who will notice failures of continuity in product placement. That is, you'll notice a can of Coke, and it'll say Coca-Cola, and then in the next shot, you'll see there's still a can of Coke there, but you'll have the back of the can. And then you'll realize, A, either that it isn't product placement or that if it is product placement, they blew it somehow. So that attention to reflective surfaces in movies, to um, little things that are going on off the side, what we talked about last time is the um, things that our brains are keeping track of, um, even if our minds aren't, because we're looking for changes. But if you're looking really hard for changes, it's a kind of where's Waldo way of watching movies. Like that alliteration, the Where's Waldo way of watching. Um, if you do that, you will really be doing that when you watch Jean Dielman. Um, and Ackerman, whose visual intelligence is um, astonishing, genius level visual intelligence, she clearly does that. That is, there's nothing that you could, no change that you could um, get away with in, um, a, in, in a change of angle, um, in a cut in a movie where she wouldn't notice the change. Some of you may know there's a YouTube, um, it's one of several YouTubes about perceptual psychology. You, you guys all know the YouTube about the gorilla and the basketballs? Is this, yeah, everyone knows that. Um, no? Is there anyone who doesn't? Well, I just gave it away. Um, <laughs> People are asked to, this is a psych experiment, whereas in many psych experiments, um, people are, think they're being tested on something when they're in fact being tested on something else. So they really try to do well in the psych experiment, but they don't realize that the, um, that the investigators couldn't care less how well they do in the tasks that they're assigned. Um, what the investigators want to do is how much does that task affect something else that they don't know they're being um, observed 
about. So you pro some of you probably know um, the the priming experiment where people are asked to uh, memorize a list of words and then say how many words they've seen um, when they're given a second list of words. And so the, the um, students who do this experiment think, okay, so it's an experiment in which it's about my memory and, you know, I want to show that I have a good memory and I'm going to really, I'm, I'm going to rock this experiment and I'm really going to make sure I remember those words. But um, what they're in fact interested in is that... Um, if you see a list of words that are more or less neutral, um, half the subjects are shown a list of words that are more or less neutral, and half the subjects are shown a list of words that are kind of associated with old age. Um, so, you know, stuff like Florida and um, lame and limp and tired and stuff like that. Just in the list of words, there'll be some words that prime you towards thinking about old age. And you don't realize that. You think you're just looking at a list of words. Then when the experiment is over, um, they walk down the hall to leave the building. And that's where the experiment actually begins, because what's happening is the investigators are timing how long it takes them to walk down the hall. And supposedly, although this turned out to be bullshit, but supposedly people who saw a lot of words having to do with old age um, took um, statistically significantly a longer time to walk down the hall because they had somehow internalized and absorbed um, this vocabulary of old age than people who are getting a bunch of neutral words. So this, is, this shows that you can be primed and that the Koch brothers are evil because they will um, prime us to vote for Tea Party. Or that the Koch brothers are good because they will prime us to vote for the Tea Party. This is a, this is a politically neutral class. Um, so, um, th so one of those <laughs> experiments has to do with what you notice when you think you're noticing something else. And in this one, people are asked to time um, how many um, times um, a bunch of students in a hallway who are being filmed um, bounce basketballs towards each other. They have three or four basketballs, and they're bouncing them towards each other kind of randomly. And you're supposed to just count how many times a basketball changes hands. And you have to concentrate to do it. It's not, um, it's not uh, that hard, but it's not that easy. And in the middle of this video, a person in a gorilla suit um, walks through the frame, stops right in the middle, um, beats his chest, looks right at the camera, and then walks off in the other direction. Um, and people are counting basketballs, and if you ask them later, did you notice anything weird when you were counting the basketballs, about half of them say no. And if you say, so you didn't notice the gorilla, um, half of them say, no, get out of here. Um, get the heck out of here. Um, and um, then they're shown the video again, and they deny it's the same video, um, because this time they see the gorilla. Um, so Chantal Ackerman would have seen the gorilla. Um, and um, there's one other interesting um, experiment of this sort. You should look these up. This is, if you look these up on YouTube, you'll get the you may also like list. So go to the ones you may also like. But one is someone doing a, magic, a card trick. And what happens is you're supposed to see whether you can tell how he does the card trick. Have people seen this one? Um, well, he does a card trick. And what happens is there's no cut. So um, he can't be cheating on the car trick. And first we see him, he's sitting there. Um, there's a table with um, a tablecloth on it um, that you're going to watch really carefully because what if he's got a card hidden under the table? Um, there is a backdrop behind him, a couple of ferns, naturally. 
um, and an assistant. And what happens is he starts doing this card trick, and the camera just goes in on his hand so we can watch really, really carefully, which is what we want to be doing, what he's doing with the cards. And so we're focused really intensely on his hands, and finally, basically, what we see is his hands and um, his shirt. And then the camera pulls back. He's done the card trick. You know, it's a fine card trick. It's, it's the kind of card trick people do. Um, it's, it's all fine. And then the question is, could you see how he did the card trick? And if you're good, you can see it. And if you're not good, you can say, um, no, but it just didn't seem that impressive. Um, what you don't notice is that while the camera, they then show it again. Um, and they show, they give you a shot of the whole thing, including the camera moving in towards his hand, that while he's been doing the card trick and the camera has done a close-up on his hands, um, someone has has taken the tablecloth off the table and put on a completely different tablecloth off off frame we can't see it because the camera's on his hand changed the black backdrop from blue to yellow the assistant becomes another person um, and basically everything about the context is changed but because we're focusing on the car trick when the camera pulls out again we don't notice that any of this has happened um, so again Ackerman would have noticed she would have said um, she would have said, je m'en fous. Um, she would have been surprised. Um, so if you watch Jean Dielman that way, um, what you'll notice in day three, which is to say hour three of Jean Dielman, is that she's doing things slightly differently from the way she's been doing them the first two days. And um, the more carefully you watch, the more you'll notice just very small differences in the way she does her domestic activities. So two days she's been um, not a robot, but um, has been so utterly anally precise in everything that she does that you notice that somehow um, she's not being precise in exactly the same way on the third day. And what you will think is the actress Unlike Jean Dielman, the actress isn't, uh, isn't, an, isn't a crazy OCD person. Um, the actress must not be doing it the same way, but must not be noticing that she's doing it slightly differently. Or maybe Ackerman isn't noticing that she's doing it slightly differently. But she is, and the point of the movie is to see that something is happening and that these differences are actually making a difference, and then um, they lead to um, a climax um, and the climax is actually very plot-oriented. Um, it's the place in Jean Dielman where suddenly in this movie, which seems entirely or almost entirely indifferent to plot, um, it turns out, no, in fact, the movie it has a really, really intense plot that we're not expecting at all. Um, two major things happen. Um, neither of which we expect, but which seem clearly related to each other, on day three of Jean Dielman. And the only preparation for what happens um, is that there are these very slight discrepancies and divergences in what Jean is doing um, on day three. So the point then is that in Jean Dielman, everything matters. Um, but it matters for a different reason that it matters in a standard, um, well-made, um, plot-oriented movie, in a standard, well-made Hollywood movie. How many people have seen um, Something Wild, the um, Jonathan Demme movie? Um, 
it's great. You should see it. If you like Silence of the Lambs, you know, it's probably not better than Silence of the Lambs, but it might be. Um, there's a discrepancy about 45 minutes into Silence of the Lambs that you think is a mistake on Demi's part. You think it's a movie-making mistake. I'll just say this about it. Um, and it turns out it isn't. It turns out that um, everything we thought we knew was wrong and that it wasn't um, that the film made a mistake. It was that um, we're finding something out that we didn't know about a character. Um, and we don't even realize we're finding that out. If you did, well, I shouldn't say more because not all of you have done the test yet, um, but um, Demi is good at that. Um, he's really good at um, misleading us in that way. Okay, so the, what this has to do with La Captive is you don't really watch the, that movie for the plot. Um, and probably you don't really watch it um, quite for the characters, except to the extent that you can feel that their creepiness, um, if you see them as creepy, especially his creepiness, um, is um, a creepiness that might be something you would worry about as one aspect of your relationship to other people. Not the dominant aspect, not the typical or everyday aspect, um, but something that is always a standing possibility, um, which is to say the standing possibility of obsession. And for Ackerman, that obsession is visual. That is to say, if you say, why is he stalking her? Why is he following her around? What is it that he is trying to see? Um, the answer to that question, at least, is um, starts being implicit in the idea that he's trying to see something. So the question really begin, becomes, what is it that he wants from her? And that is not a plot question. That's not a question about a MacGuffin, to go back to the idea of MacGuffins. If you say, what is it that um, um, Richard Haney wants, or what is it that the professor wants in the 39 steps? Um, what is it in North by Northwest that the CIA wants, or what is it that um, Claude Rains wants in Notorious, to use those Hitchcock examples of, McGuff of MacGuffins, or what does Tom Cruise want in MI3? Um, the answer is something that it would be obvious you would want if you knew what it was. Um, something that if you, when you find out what it is, you would see why so many people are working so hard to get this thing, because it will bring world peace around, or it will um, cure juvenile diabetes, or whatever it will do. There's, um, the assumption is that when you know what it is, it will be, it will be clear by itself why people want it, um, why those who are after it want it. Um, money, therefore, in a sense, is the perfect MacGuffin, um, which is that there doesn't have to be any explanation for why people want money. Um, money, is, money is, by definition, the thing that people want. Um, what makes it not quite a perfect MacGuffin is that there's no mystery about money, whereas the mystery of a MacGuffin is why is it that you want this thing? What is it? which will explain why people want it. Um, 
However, as the wanted thing, money is perfect. Not everyone wants a gun. Not everyone wants um, a tulip. Um, some people might, some people might not. Um, not everyone wants that sexual object. Some people like that person, find that person hot. Others don't. Some people find that person grating. Others don't. But still, um, wa wanting the MacGuffin is a standard plot device. When we get to the vanishing towards the end of the course, um, the MacGuffin in the vanishing is, um, how many people have seen it? I'm not telling you, I'm not giving anything away by telling you what the MacGuffin is. The MacGuffin is wanting to know what happened. That is, what happened is the MacGuffin. Solving the mystery is what the MacGuffin is. Something happened and we don't know um, what. Something happens to a character and we don't know what. You can't say that about La Captive. That is to say, um, you can ask the question, what does he want from her? Um, but there's no answer that's going to clarify things. It's not that, what are the possible things that in a boy meets girl movie, in a romantic story, um, what is it that the boy wants from the girl? Classically, Hollywood. It's, I don't think this is a hard question, if I may say so. Sex, probably. Oh, no, I was thinking long conversations and pina coladas and walks in the rain, um, not being into health food, being into champagne. Um, yeah, sex. Um, that's the standard answer. Um, that is that what we want on behalf of the romantic um, leads um, what they want from each other, at least what one wants from the other, is something like erotic satisfaction. Um, sometimes figured as marriage. That is, oh, you'll marry me, I'm so happy, and then they lived happily ever after. Sometimes figured as sex, sometimes figured as safety. That is, we had sex, but now you're in danger, so I have to keep you safe so that we can have more sex. Um, you know, that's what um, something like Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace are about. Um, but in some sense or other, what they want um, is something that we can define to begin with. It's not hard to define the, um, the thing that, that um, is driving the agonists, the protagonist, um, the deuteroagonist, that is those who are playing the game. That's a word, what the word agonist means. Agonist means contestant. Um, so the protagonist means... The prot in protagonist is the same prot as in proton or as in prototype. It means the first contestant, the protagonist, the first contestant, the first player. The antagonist is um, played by Flick. In a, no, the antagonist is the is the player who plays against the first player. Not necessarily an ant, although occasionally an ant. Um, and uh, there's also a term, the deuteroagonist, which means another player, as in Deuteronomy, another law. Um, deuter means a second or an other, deuterium, um, a second version of hydrogen. Um, so 
the protagonist is the first player, and we usually know what they're playing for. It's not like, well, here I am on Jeopardy, but um, you know, I don't care about the money. Um, why did you only bet $2 in Final Jeopardy when you couldn't possibly catch up by betting $2? Well, I'm not on, Final, I'm not on Jeopardy for the money. No, you're on a game show for the money, right? Um, so in all those cases, we know what they're playing for. The stakes are clear. With a MacGuffin, we at least we don't know what the stakes are, but it's clear to us that the stakes will be clear once we know what's in the suitcase or what's on the microfilm or what's in the um, in the in the lead-lined box. Then the state. Then we assume to begin with that it will be clear why people played for those stakes, and in love story. In love stories, the stakes are um, being with the person that um, the main character is erotically attracted to, um, or maybe the two of them getting together, um, and our feeling that, yeah, those are clear stakes. Um, that makes sense. Um, what could he want? What could he want in La Captive? What could he want that he doesn't have? Do you see how that makes it different? That's a different question, or the difficulty of answering that question um, shows how this is different from, well, what does Fred Astaire want? Well, he wants Ginger Rogers. Um, what does Cary Grant want? Um, he wants Ingrid, Ber um, Ingrid Bergman. Um, what does the male Proustian rich guy want? in La Captive, yeah. It seems like he wants her to be as devoted to him as he is to her. When he talks about, like, towards the end, when they're saying what love is for each of them, he says how he wants to know everything about her, like, everything she's doing, how she feels about him, and then she says, well, the thing I love about you is how you're a mystery and that I don't know things about you. And he said, well, I guess we have different meanings of love. Yeah. But I think he wants her to feel the same as he does. He wants her to feel the same way for him as he does. Okay, which is um, to be obsessed with him, you could say. And this is the second time you saw it, right? Yeah. Yeah, so did you like it? Yeah, I did. Um, more or less the second time. I understood it more the second time. Yeah. Okay, so they do have that, that dialogue on love. Um, do you think that's what he wants, though? That is, that's what he thinks he wants, or at least that's his definition of what it means to love someone. It's to, it's to know everything about them. Um, how much does he tell her about himself? I mean, it's clear that she is devoted to him, right? There's no question about her devotion to him. Um, there's no question that she'll essentially do anything he asks. Um, yeah? Mm hmm Okay, good. Yeah. Um, this may sound weird, but I feel like he's looking almost for a reason to break up with her. Mm -hmm. Um, because he doesn't and he states like that he wasn't madly in love with her and I think that 
he was stuck in the, like, they're both stuck in the relationship, but she's not going to leave, and he's having trouble finding a concrete reason to leave. Okay, so um, you see this as partly his way of um, dealing with um, a kind of obsessive, dysfunctional um, um, connection to her. Um, I think he's certainly right um, in thinking that he would have a less, he would be less of a creep, let's say. Um, his life would be less um, painfully, his emotional life would be um, a less painful regimen if she weren't involved with him. Um, so um, that certainly comes through very sharply. Yeah. Um, There's, I think there's still the question, though, um, what does he imagine an alternative love would be like? That is to say, um, if he had a fantasy of what it would be like, and, and he does express that fantasy to have someone, um, you know, to know, to know everything about someone. Um, Knowing everything about her, what would that do for him? What more would he know if he knew everything? I mean, obviously in that dialogue, to the extent that one of them is right, she is. Um, and um, what, what it, let's just ask it that way. This is a much simpler question or a much more everyday sort of question. Um, how do we know that she's right? Why is what she's saying more psychologically... Um, insightful about um, what human relations are than what he's saying. Can you describe the alternatives again? Um, the fact that, that he wanted her to be as devoted to him as he is to her. Yeah, but also that he wants to know everything about her. There's nothing that he doesn't want to know. Um, what he wants is to have um, absolute knowledge of every aspect of um, who and what she is. Um, the kind of knowledge that if we were talking about Blade Runner would be the kind of knowledge you could have about whom? About what sort of being? Fake ones. Sorry? Fake ones. Fake ones. Replicants. Um... And, um, but that's what he wants. Um, he wants her to be a human being who's transparent to him, um, where everything is illuminated. Um, and what she wants is to be with someone who is perpetually surprised, for whom there are always unplumbed depths. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not sure um, if Ackerman necessarily would be like happy about a continuity reading of her films, given how French she is. Um, but, um, I mean, like, there are a lot of philosophers who think that our own happiness is opaque to even us, let alone, like, the happiness in the world of others. Mm -hmm. So, like, in terms of, like, us believing her more than him, he just seems to be asking for something that, A, doesn't exist, like, complete knowledge of self doesn't exist, so complete knowledge of another person would seem to imply complete knowledge of self, um, which is not a thing. Um, and then additionally, it doesn't seem like he gets that. It doesn't seem that he gets that there are aspects of her identity that are unknown to her, or aspects of his identity that are unknown to him, which makes it seem like he, he just he does. He comes off as quite pig-headed because yeah. 
he thinks he knows everything about himself. That's like the precondition to being in a relationship where you know everything about the other person and it's reciprocal. Mm-hmm. And so I wouldn't, I don't know, in her head there being a response of like, I don't know everything about me. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's right, in that it's um, what he's imagining is um, a kind of total and complete knowledge, both of himself and of herself, um, that were he to have, I guess the question is, what would he have? Um, so say he succeeded, um, and there's some sense in which he succeeds. That is, we don't get the sense um, at the end of the movie um, that there's anything she's hiding from him. Um, there's plenty that she um, doesn't explain, um, partly because he doesn't ask about. But um, part of, I think, what's great about the movie is that you get a strong sense that any question that he asked her, she would give a truthful answer to. Um, that she would have no hesitation whatever about giving him a truthful answer to any question. Is your hand up? No. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, he's asking for something that's completely impossible and that um, he can't, like, knowing her entirely would be almost, like, godlike, mm-hmm. and that's what he's, like, searching for like this all-knowing um ability and no one has that so yeah what he's saying is that yeah yeah i also think he wants to be enough for her that she doesn't go and um fall in love with other people and i think that was also an issue was um his masculinity that he doesn't think he's i think um remember there's like the scene where they're driving to the aunt's house in the distance there's the big tower in front of them, right uh-huh so there was like the issue with his masculinity being at risk and that he's not enough for her to just be satisfied. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay, so in a sense, um, this question of his obsession with her um, and his desire um, to be enough for her, which is how you're reading it, um, part of it, I think, is... Trying to think if I should mention one of the events that happens in Jean Dielman or not, um, but part of it is that to know her fully—that is, to have absolute knowledge of her—would mean something like having absolute knowledge of her own, er, of her own desires, of her own erotic life, um, and because he doesn't share her erotic life, that is, um, he doesn't have the same desires that she does. Um, that's not knowledge that he can fully have. Um, even if he knows what she desires, um, he can't quite know what it's like to desire the way she's desiring. Um, but the thing about her is that she is represented, I mean, if those of you who, we began with people saying um, that um, both of them are, are distasteful, or you had a distaste, some of you found both um, the main character is distasteful. Um, part of what's strange about her is that she never resists him. That is, never, no matter how um, creepy he is, um, she's, uh, she never objects. Um, there's never a moment where she objects to him. And um, 
the question is, does he want her to object or not? And I think in a Hollywood movie, the answer would be yes, he does. That is the, that that's what it means to grow into um, a real understanding of love. But it seems pretty clear in this movie that he doesn't. Um, that um, a sense of her autonomy, um, he doesn't want her to be to have autonomy, um, and she doesn't. But even though she doesn't, that's not enough for him. Um, or the only autonomy that she has is that she actually loves him. Um, that is that she loves him, which is coming from her. It's not, which means in a strange and paradoxical way that he doesn't own her love. Um, because she loves him, because she gives him her love, she's the one doing the giving. And she gives him that love without condition so that whatever he wants, she will give him. Um, but her love is not obsessive. Um, her love is love of him rather than need for him. She's not a needy person. Um, and her non-neediness, um, in a sense, is um, Ackerman is making that as, um, and she's following Proust in this, um, is making that part of um, what makes her love entirely his, is given entirely to him. Um, need always implies disguise. If you need something, um, then you are going to strategize how to get it. And strategizing how to get it means that you're going to disguise your need in one way or another. She doesn't disguise her love in any way, and that's because her love for him isn't needy. Um, it's just um, what he thinks he wants. And yet somehow um, what he thinks he wants is never enough for him. Now, in the movie, the reason um, that um, it seems so appropriate for a film is that it becomes something that we're going to be um, talking about um, over the next couple of weeks. It becomes a kind of pure visual obsession. What he wants to be doing is seeing her at every moment and from every angle. Um, part of what's, I think, amazing about the movie is just how spectacularly beautiful it is. Um, everything about the movie, every shot, every scene um, is beautiful, but particularly, well, maybe not the aunt's house, but um, pretty much everything else. Um, and it's um, beautiful and sterile. Um, and the sterility is part of um, the point here. That is that what he wants from her is, um, let's say, a kind of purity of possession. Purity not in the good sense, but in the sterile sense. A purity of possession where there's nothing else going on, where everything else besides his ownership of her is purged away. And that comes out in the movie as beauty. That comes out in the movie as um, a pure visual intensity, which is what he is always directing towards her. And um, sometimes the beauty is, I mean, sometimes it, it comes out as singing, for example, when she sings. Um, sometimes it comes out even as darkness, as um, especially in the bluest shots in the movie, the shots around water, the shots um, in the bathroom, the shots um, at the end um, by, the, by the ocean, by the sea. Um, but, the, um, but the beauty of the movie is 
somehow what he wants from her is an ownership of that kind of beauty, an ownership of vision. What is going to be called and what we'll be looking at under the name scoptophilia, um, which means, literally it means the love of looking. And um, psychoanalytically in what we're going to be looking, what we're going to be um, examining, um, it is um, an eroticization of looking, looking as itself um, a kind of strange and um, self-limiting and there and self-frustrating and therefore self-intensifying erotic activity. Um, but just to get back to this question, this is the Cartesian question in La Captive, um, and then we'll we'll go back to some of the issues that I, we keep not going back to in Barclay and Kant. Um, and Hume, the Cartesian question in La Captive um, is that the one thing it seems that he wants and that she gives him and yet that he can never have is her love. And the reason he can't is that he somehow cannot have an attitude towards her in which he understands that she is someone who loves. For him, she is an object where the idea of being an object doesn't mean that um, you don't do things, you don't, um, you're not hungry, you're not thirsty, you don't have sentience, you don't have feeling, you don't have consciousness. Um, all of those are things that he will grant to her just as they're all things that we, that we and the Blade Runners and Tyrell grant to the replicants. Um, the replicants are cold, the replicants are hungry, and so on. Of course they are. Um, but there's something about um, an originality of desire, of intention, of um, personhood, that isn't available to observation, that if what you want from someone is to know everything about them, that's something you can't know. That's something that's it, that is impossible for you to know. Um, what it is to love the way they love. That's how it's coming out in La Captive. Um, not quite coming out that way in Blade Runner, but close enough in Blade Runner. Um, it's worth comparing the difference between the woman in La Captive and Rachel in Blade Runner. Um, Rachel doesn't convincingly, Sean Young doesn't convincingly, apparently um, she, 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 Sean Young herself, um, found the whole making of the movie very, very creepy and very, very um, crazy making. Um, but Rachel is a figure who is utterly self-possessed and um, what you don't feel what I don't feel at any rate is um, any anxiety in her love for Deckard that is um, does she love Deckard or not in a sense um, that's not even a relevant question um, she's a love object in Blade Runner and not a love subject. She, she's not, she doesn't have subjectivity. Um, Roy does, Pris does, but Rachel doesn't. 
Um, whereas in La Captive, she really does. Um, and that's the thing that um, the male figure in La Captive is unable to get his mind around. Rachel would have been perfect for him. Rachel is what he wants. Um, what he wants is a replicant. Um, except he doesn't quite. But what he wants is something entirely visible to him. And that entire visibility um, is something that um, can't capture what she really is. Um, even though she tries to be entirely visible to him. It's not that um, she wants to hide something. It's what can't be captured is the fact that she is an other, that she's not simply perceived, but that she is herself um, a perceiver. And not a perceiver in the sense that the replicants are, that is, that they're cybernetic um, organisms, um, where, again, uh, everyone knows what the word cybernetic is means, but no one really does. Does anyone, can anyone define cybernetic? Does anyone know its root meaning, what it comes from? Cyber. From where? Cyber, right? Well, from cyber, actually, um, I don't think so. I think cyber is actually short for cybernetic. Um, what do you think cyber means? When we think of like, I, I generally associate them with like cyberspace. Yeah. So I just think about like the like the stuff with the internet. I, I don't really know. It's kind of just the abstract parts of like what the internet is. Yeah. So that's what it's come to mean. Um, but the word cybernetic was coined. I, pretty sure by Norbert Wiener. I'm 99% sure it was coined by Norbert Wiener. It comes from the Greek word for helmsman of a ship. Um, the Latin word is um, governor, and it's related to the Greek word, which is kubernetos. Um, and a kubernetos is someone who keeps a ship on course, someone who is um, steering a ship. And so the idea of a, cyber, of a cybernetic device, um, the simplest cybernetic device is a thermostat. Um, it's something which is always correcting itself on the basis. There are actually simpler cybernetic devices in, um, in earlier machinery, actually, I now realize. Um, but it's, it's a self-correcting mechanism. That's what, that's what a cybernetic mechanism is, is that it's a self-correcting mechanism. So what, is, what a thermostat um, does, and what's a real, why it's a really good example of a cybernetic mechanism, is a thermostat's connected to a furnace or to an air conditioner. And with this weather, we'll think about furnaces. Um, a, ther a thermostat is connected to a furnace. Um, when it gets cold, the thermostat turns the furnace on. Um, and it does so because it's got a thermometer. Um, so it's monitoring through, through some kind of um, measure of temperature. It's monitoring what the temperature is. Um, when the temperature gets low enough, the mercury falls enough, or um, some um, highly sensitive coil of metal contracts enough that closes a circuit. Um, that circuit turns the furnace on. The furnace goes on, it gets warmer, the metal expands or the mercury goes up, and um, the circuit is then opened again and the furnace clicks off. So it's a self-balancing mechanism. It's a self-correcting or self-balancing mechanism. So the idea of where we get the idea of um, computers as cybernetic, 
um, is that the idea is to write something which um, operates on inputs. What computers do is they operate on inputs from the world, and those inputs can be of many, many different sorts, from people typing at a keyboard um, to um, darkness falling on an electrovoltaic cell or whatever, um, and um, produces an output which may then change further inputs. And so a computer is always, a, or a cybernetic machine is always balancing what it does against what it has done to the environment, to any change in the environment to which it might contribute. So the idea of a cybernetic machine and the idea of artificial intelligence is something like anything that responds um, in a homeostatic way to its environment is a perceiving and responding machine, and what are human beings, what are living organisms, if not perceiving and responding machines. So we produce homeostasis in ourselves and in our environment, so do cybernetic machines, and therefore from cybernetics we have a model of what life is. And the replicants are clearly cybernetic in that sense. Um, if you tickle them, they laugh. If you prick them, they bleed. If you poison them, they die. If you wrong them, they revenge. Um, they respond to their environment. That respond changes the environment. Um, the cha they then respond to the changed environment. Um, and um, that relationship is, if that's all life is, if that's all it means to be a mind, um, then there's no question about other minds. Because anyone you throw something at, if they catch it or dodge it or bat it away, they are responding to something that happens to them in the environment, and they're sustaining wh what they were before, which is someone who hasn't just been hit by the ball you threw at them. Um, so replicants can do that. The question is, can humans do anything more? Do humans do anything more? Um, how could you tell the difference between a replicant and a being with consciousness? That is, there's a question in philosophy um, that people have been interested in late, lately, which is the question of zombies, which is, could someone be a zombie? Where the philosophical definition of a zombie, can you give it, Zach? Uh, you don't need to. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's the more, it's more, uh, more advanced Turing tests, basically, uh, whether you can tell by a being's behavior, whether, you know, whether you can tell by their behavior whether uh, it has a mind. Yeah. So the question is, does does her, does um, in her, um, does Scarlett, does the Scarlett Johansson character? Um, actually have a mind or not. Uh, she sounds convincing, um, but does Siri have a mind? Um, we would say no. Not everyone would say no, but most of us would say no. Um, so the question in philosophy, the question about... So did you want to say? I mean, I was going to define zombie, but that's... Yeah, go ahead. I think a zombie is something that uh, doesn't really actually have consciousness, but appears to have... Right. And so the idea is, yeah. I was going to say Kantians defined it as someone who has villa but not will core, so they have like a will, they can set and pursue ends, like I want brains. 
they don't have the capacity for elective will. It's like we only have one word for will, which German has two. Uh huh. Yeah. So so um, <laughs> I love the idea. I want brains to eat them. Like you um, have brains, but you can't be like my. Like, I want to, like, develop myself as a human and go to college to study brains and then understand them and find brains. Like, a zombie couldn't do that. Right. But a zombie can be, like, brains over there. Like, walk over there. Yeah. So it, it can be something that um, has a tropism towards um, what's sometimes defined as a need rather than an emotion. Um, that's another distinction that you can make um, between desires and needs. And um, it's very, very hard to say what an emotion is um, but very easy to say what a need is. And um, okay, so one way to put this is, um, and this again has to do with the replicants. Um, one way to put this is to say that um, there's no question that um, through some biological um, testing, um, with the right sort of um, testing machinery you could tell whether someone had a need or not, um, where the need would be um, something like hunger or thirst. You could define hunger as um, the feeling that you have that's produced in you um, when you need food. Thirst is the feeling that's produced in you when you need water. Um, pain is the feeling that is produced in you when you need to move or change um, or, or do something um, in order to functional, function optimally. And you can look at, um, at least in principle, you could look at um, what's going on biologically to see how it is that someone feels hunger, um, where the sense receptors for hunger are, um, where the sense receptors for thirst are. So if you feel hungry, you could also probably figure out the neurology of hunger. I mean, you can certainly figure out the neurology of hunger. If you're thirsty, you can figure out the neurology of thirst. Um, whereas with emotion, it's much, much harder to do that. Um, with emotion, you can't really say, um, here's the neurology of sadness, because someone might um, be in exactly the same neurological state um, and not be sad, but just, you know, be depressed or tired or whatever. Um, as someone else who is sad. Um, sadness is always, um, and other emotions are always defined um, almost um, prior to whatever is going on neurologically. Um, there may be some neurological correlate of sadness, but to know that it's sadness, you would need to know um, what is actually happening in the person's life um, when you see this neurological correlate. The neurology itself won't tell you that a person is sad or not. So um, the idea then would be something like to be fully human, you have to um, have emotions and not only needs. Um, so the idea, the philosophical idea that people are playing with now um, of zombies is you can imagine, or it's possible to imagine, um, that, and Descartes tries to imagine this, um, that someone you meet is a replicant. And what that means is, well, to quote Neuromancer, um, the great novel that's at the, heart, at the start of um, the Matrix movies, at any rate, among um, others, um, there's a character, Neuromancer, uh, who is purely um, 
exists purely in cyberspace. Um, he's known as the Dixie Flatline. The real Dixie has died, but his personality has been recorded. His neurology has been recorded. The um, 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 disposition and organization of all his neurons have been recorded. And he is then there's a simulation of him in cyberspace. And Case, who is the main character of Neuromancer, um, spends a lot of time in what we would now call the Matrix, but in cyberspace, um, the term that William Gibson, the author of Neuromancer, invented. Um, so he spends a lot of time in cyberspace where he's um, attempting to do something important. Um, and um, he gets advice from the Dixie Flatline, who is a cyber entity in cyberspace, and who talks to him just as his real meat space friend talked to him in real life before he died, before he flatlined. Um, so Case and the Dixie Flatline spend a lot of time talking together. And at one point, Case says to him, so I actually have a question for you. Do you have sentience? Do you have consciousness? Um, or are you just um, a, a really clever program that responds the way Dixie would respond if you had consciousness, but are you just a series of instructions rather than a conscious being? The way Siri is a series of instructions rather than a conscious being. So um, Case asks Dixie this question, and his answer is, I don't know. It sure feels as though I'm alive, um, but I don't know. And so there um, you have an example of a possible zombie, which is that that gives us no answer to that question because whether Dixie actually feels that he's alive, whether he actually has a consciousness or not, um, isn't answered by the fact that that's what he says because he says everything that Dixie would say if he has a consciousness. That's what, it mean, that's what a simulation is, is that it simulates what a conscious being would say. And what a conscious being would say if you asked whether it had a consciousness or not is, yes, I do, or it feels as though I do. So you can't ask a conscious, you can't ask another person, are they conscious or not? So one way of thinking about zombies is to say, is it possible that half the people in this room are biologically identical, you know, um, as by some definition of identical to the other half of the people in this room, but actually don't see, hear, feel, smell, taste, or think, but are only programmed to act as though they see, hear, feel, smell, taste, and think? That is, is it possible that half the people in this room are biological machines that interact with us who do feel, see, hear, smell, taste, and think, etc., um, just as they would if they did have consciousness, but they just don't. All they are are um, incredibly complicated reflex arcs um, programmed to respond, programmed biologically to respond the way conscious beings respond. So let me just ask that as a question. Is it possible? Not do you think it. Um, although if you knew some of my friends, you might think it. Um, not do you think it, but is it conceivable 
that that's the case. That some people in this room are conscious and other people in this room are just simulations of conscious beings. Yeah? Isn't that, uh, you know, can we be living in a matrix kind of question? Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's kind of, I think to me the answer is obviously yes. Okay. Do other people agree? Is the answer obviously yes? Yeah. I mean, like, if we're going with brain in a vat, there are two questions. Are we brains in a vat, and can we know it? Yeah. So, like, depending on whether or not you think the answer to the second question is yes or no, the first one's kind of irrelevant. Yeah, but, that, but that's the question that Professor Flesh asked was, is it conceivable? Yeah, so, like, so it's, conceivable. It's, it's conceivable, but right. it, the, the fact that I can conceive of something isn't important. The fact that I could know one way or the other is to me. So, like, I can conceive of many things, but if I can conceive of situations where either true or false, I couldn't know the difference, those situations start to become less exciting to think about. Well, okay, so there's, there's the question, if you can't know the difference, the brain in the vat question actually raises other issues. Um, yeah. And one issue it actually raises is, can we conceive it or not? Um, which Putnam says we can't. Um, but the um, question, what, not, it's not a question of what difference does it make. Because for Case in Neuromancer, that great philosophical novel, it makes no difference. Um, that is the Dixie flatline who doesn't know whether, it's, whether he's conscious or not, but says it certainly feels like he's conscious. That puts um, Case under a moral obligation to do for him um, what you do for people that um, you have moral obligations towards, that is, towards other persons. Um, the Dixie flatline expresses a really desperate wish um, halfway through the novel, and Case promises him that he will grant his wish, and he does, that he will do what he can to, um, to do what the Dixie Flatline wants, what Dixie wants, and when Case can do it, he does do it. And that's clearly morally correct for him to do it. Um, but there's still the question simply, is it conceivable? Not that it would make a difference. You might still feel that you had moral obligations if you didn't know, but is it conceivable um, that someone is a zombie or not, um, by which that would mean that if you somehow got transported into their brain, um, you would no longer exist. Is it conceivable that they don't exist the way you do, um, even though they act the way you do? In some sense, it has to be, because there's the really puzzling question, why when you wake up every morning, do you wake up as yourself and not as someone else? There's a huge utter, unbridgeable chasm, to quote William James, um, between your mind and the mind of another person. Um, there you are, a headless figure, the only person in the room who doesn't have a head. That's how Ernst Mach puts it. Um, look around, and everyone else has heads, but you don't. All you are is this strange gap on the top of your body. Um, how is it that you got to be you rather than, I mean, that's the question that Roy asks, right? How is it that you got to be you rather than some other mind? So there's some way in which others are opaque to us, and the question is, how significant is that opacity? How deep does that opacity run? How much is it the case that, um, it does or doesn't make a difference to think that every person is a headless body 
in their own life. And um, one way to get some purchase on that question is to ask whether you could imagine that some people are zombies, even if not all people are zombies, which is to say that they act like human beings in every way, but they're not. They're robots or cartoon characters or um, light on a screen, um, things without minds that nevertheless act as though they have minds, that talk, that speak, that laugh, that cry, and so on, but don't have minds. And I think what the guy in La Captive wants is for her not to have a mind. That is, um, and the huge puzzle to him the thing that he can't somehow tolerate is that she loves him because that's something he can't know. That's something that comes from her mind and something that he simply can't get out of his own subjective point of view to have immediate primary knowledge of her point of view where her point of view is that she loves him and so what he retreats to is the purely visual or the purely filmic you could say um, okay we will 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 do <laughs> talk about um, Kant, Hume and Barclay and Zeno one final time but we really will do it on Tuesday Uh-huh. So